Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Jill Parnell. Jill is the Chair of Health and Physical Education at Mount Royal University in Calgary, and she's been there since 2009. And Jill has a research interest in dietary supplement use and efficacy in Paralympic athletes. So welcome to the podcast, Jill. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, It's really good to, to be able to chat with you today about all things supplements. So firstly, can you tell us about your background and how you got interested in researching dietary supplements in para athletes? Yeah. So I did an undergraduate degree, biology and chemistry, and within that got to do some exercise physiology courses and really got interested in the nutrition component. So I then came to the University of Calgary to do my PhD. It was more medical science nutrition focused, looking Mm -hmm. at some prebiotics, but also how that interacts with the gut. Once I got to Mount Royal, I was free to develop my own program of research. And that's where I really got to pursue my passion of performance nutrition. Mm -hmm. And I really had an interest in looking at performance nutrition outside of the more commonly studied young male population (laughs) that was... (laughs) Yep. <laughs> more traditionally studied. So some work in youth athletes and then really got interested and got to work with some of the para athletes and just really, really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so which, were there any particular groups of para athletes that you were, were having the opportunity to work with at the time? When we were doing it, the initial study, we did it having athletes submit food records and questionnaires virtually. And we've continued to do that just because the populations are so spread out across the country. It's hard to get a team that even trains and practices together consistently. But Mm -hmm. we've done a fair amount uh, with wheelchair rugby where we were able to actually go to competition and, and collect data that way. Uh, Our most recent study looking at sport nutrition knowledge was actually international. So it's been quite Mm. broad as to how we've been able to to work with the athletes. But it is relatively difficult to get all of the athletes in the same place at the same time to physically be in contact with a team. Mm, Yeah, yeah, I think that's the case in pretty much all countries. And the difficulty, I guess, with any para research is that they're such a widespread population both in terms of the type of impairments and the sports that they are participating in but also their location across the country so it you know sometimes collaboration is important let's just start off with a definition perhaps of dietary supplements so when you're doing research in this area what do you define dietary supplements as being Good question. We typically tend to go with the definition from the IOC consensus statement. And so in that case, it is a food or a food component. So part of a food, uh, an individual nutrient, such as a vitamin or mineral, or a non-food compound. And it has to be purposefully consumed or chosen to be eaten in addition to the regular diet. And the goal of consuming that product has to be for a particular health or performance outcome. So typically, we would say any performance food, such as a sport drink or an energy drink, the protein powders, the individual amino acids, the herbal products, and then probiotics 
would also fall into that category as well as vitamins and minerals. So it, it is quite broad, but mm-hmm. it's essentially anything that's not a food and not a drug that you're consuming for health and performance. So that would include products like creatine and beta alanine and some of the other ergogenic aids? Absolutely. And it can be a bit confusing sometimes, the definition, because if you take something such as yogurt, that would be considered a food. But then if you take the probiotic in pill format, then that would be considered a a dietary supplement. So Uh it's often kind of nuanced. Okay. And what do we know about para-athletes and their usage of dietary supplements? And and in particular, can we compare that to the usage in non-para-athletes? What we do know is it is quite high. The prevalence for usage, the lowest we would see in in studies is maybe around 60%, with the highest being up to 100% of the athletes using using a supplement. Mm -hmm. So we know that the usage is really quite high. We would see similar results in in other athlete populations. So that is fairly consistent that we're seeing a lot of people using these supplements on a fairly regular basis. And we know that it varies depending on the location. So for instance, here in Canada, most of our research finds levels that are of usage that are maybe higher than some other areas. And that just often reflects the advertising as well as the ability to purchase the supplements and the availability of the supplements. So, you know, if we look at some countries where it's more challenging and people don't have maybe the same access to funds to purchase them, we see them being a bit lower, but it's Mm. usually really quite high amongst the athletes. And I guess, are you surprised by that? Like, I guess when you've got such a wide definition of dietary supplements that includes things like sport drinks, are you surprised that that's a high usage? No. And when we look at the most common supplements that we see, it's going to be vitamin D, which there's fairly Mm. broad recommendations for vitamin D supplementation for Mm. health, particularly in northern environments. As you mentioned, sport drinks are incredibly common. And so it is quite, quite a broad definition. And so because of that, you do get a fairly high usage. Mm. And so if you separate it out into things like sport drink, protein supplements, vitamin and mineral supplements, and then ergogenic aids like specifically taking caffeine or specifically taking creatine. Can you partition them out and look at the usage rates and how they differ across that? Yeah. So we have, when we do our studies, we have a massive list of supplements that Mm. we ask people to select from. And so absolutely something, for instance, like caffeine is really quite low because we're very specific caffeine consumed in pill format, not coffee, Mm. right? So then you see a much lower. Same with things like creatine. Protein powders are still quite common, even Mm -hmm. if we specifically refer to the protein powder, not, you know, the bars and things. Yep. And then when you start getting into some of the more specific herbal supplements, then those can also be a lot lower. Right. So the vitamins and minerals tend to be the, the highest ones. 
And does there seem to be any difference in, say, the the top-level athletes like those who've been to a Paralympic Games versus perhaps a developing athlete or a younger athlete? Um, we have typically just with the particularly the para-athlete populations, we usually are looking at, at athletes that are competing at, at a quite high level. I'm not mm-hmm. really aware of any supplement use at sort of the more grassroots para-athlete level to, to kind of say if there's much of a difference between those two. But we do know even just looking at, for instance, the usage in the general Canadian population, it's it's in and around that level as mm. well. Yeah. Okay. Why are we particularly interested in finding out supplement usage? Obviously, there's a question that underlies that. And is that question related to, is it efficacious? Like, is there is there a need for athletes to consume dietary supplements? Like, why are we particularly interested in this area? There's, yeah, so I'll take a crack at that. There was a, a few questions in there, so yep. I'll Sorry. go for it. Nope, that's quite all right. We're definitely interested in the usage for a few reasons. One, we want to know what people are doing because that can actually help generate research. So I really like research that, I really like to view research as going bi-directional. Mm-hmm. So we have this idea that research ideas are academics coming up with hypotheses that we go ahead and test. But what we know is that athletes are often doing a whole bunch of practices that we haven't tested. And by looking at the use, it helps us identify what supplements athletes are interested in, what their thinking might be working. And that can help drive some of our research because there are thousands of supplements out there. Mm. Um, And so I think it's a good starting point. It also does give us some indication of, are, do we have concerns, right? So mm-hmm. are we seeing high levels of supplement use, for instance, say caffeine in really young athletes that might be problematic? So yeah. it can do that. It can also target, I think, some nutrition education because we know that when we look at para-athletes, supplement information as well as sport nutrition specifically, their knowledge in that area is lower than Mm. in some of the other areas and same with coaches. So it allows us to kind of identify the supplements that we may want to be providing the most information on because we know that that's what the athletes are using. Mm. Okay. So now I've got a couple of different questions (laughs) related to that. So in terms of the, the research that is out there, what research do we have that is specifically geared around para-athletes related to dietary supplements? Do we have a lot or is there actually a big gap in that literature? We do have some information and it is growing, I would say. As you might expect, it's not as high as we would have in, in other athlete populations. We have a fair amount of information on dietary intakes and and areas of the diet that we know might be at risk and may benefit Mm -hmm. from supplementation. We have research on supplements that individuals are choosing. So so the patterns, we have information there. And then we have a little bit of information on the effectiveness of certain supplements in para-athletes as well. Okay. And and so do we think that there's any cause for concern in terms of the research that's out there in 
the able-bodied population on, let's take, I don't know, let's take creatine, for example. And if we look at the research that's there in the able-bodied population, there's 40 years plus worth of research in a wide variety of sports, a wide variety of athletic levels. If we bring that into the parasite, firstly, is there much, much research that has been translated into parasport? And secondly, do we know enough to say that we use the same dose, for example, or in the same context? So we do have a few very limited studies on creatine use in para-athletes. What I would say is mechanistically, we know that it's looking at that phosphocreatine pathway and Mm -hmm. that's in a muscle regardless of the athlete. Mm -hmm. However, the dose, I would say we have a lot less information on. So while we can assume that, you know, mechanistically they're using creatine phosphate to produce energy. We don't know, I think, enough about the dose that would be appropriate. And the other thing that we don't really know a lot about is the impact of creatine. For instance, we know that in some cases it can lead to potentially water retention, potentially cramping, and Mm -hmm that can be more problematic, for instance, in an athlete who's using a wheelchair and has straps and has to um, be a little bit more constrained when they're exercising or may need to use the bathroom more frequently. We know that that can be problematic. Mm -hmm. So with all of these supplements, we have the benefits that could potentially be seen. And then we have these potential negative side effects. And so we don't, really know the balance between that as well in in para-athletes. Most of the research regarding creatine in para-athletes is if there's a benefit, it's not really showing through strongly, but mm. we also don't have a lot of studies. And you're entirely correct that we haven't really got a lot of great information on what the potential dose should be. Mm. And certainly we know that there's differences in muscle mass and where it's the majority is distributed throughout the body in those athletes. So we don't really know if they would respond in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's similar with caffeine. We, we've had a podcast recording a number of podcast episodes ago now on mm. caffeine. And, and one of the things I think we discussed in that is that the caffeine, the response to a caffeine ingestion, for example, can vary with level of spinal cord injury in terms of how quickly it's taken up and, and what the peak is. And so we know from some of the limited caffeine research, particularly in the spinal cord injury, that perhaps we need to modify the timing and the amount of the dose uh, according to level and, and type of spinal cord injury. So I guess you know there's potentially a similar sort of aspect with, with any supplement is that we can't always just simply translate the information from an able-bodied perspective into a para population without really understanding both the positive and the potential side effect side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And then even within that, you've got considerable variability in the sports and 
the events that they're competing in. So, mm. you know, we can't broadly say in para-athletes, this is what's going to work because it's very different if you're yeah. doing a skill-based sport versus an endurance-based sport. And then, you know, you have all these other factors where you're looking at, well, it might work at say these temperatures, but it might be more problematic at different temperatures. So we know there's differences, for instance, in sweat rates in certain para-athlete groups as compared to other athlete groups. And so those are all the things to be considered. And then we also know that the gut can be impacted by injury, particularly mm. spinal cord injuries. So maybe the absorption is different. Maybe the ability for the body to store it is different. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of variability there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And with your research on the knowledge side of things, can you kind of tell us how you go, go about that research on the nutrition knowledge of the para-athletes? Yeah, so that was our most recent study, and we were quite broad with that one, as I mentioned. We did our recruitment through social media, and we had an online sport nutrition questionnaire. That questionnaire is a reliable and valid questionnaire for athletes. It wasn't specifically tailored to para-athletes, and that would be difficult to do because we don't really have standardized recommendations mm -hmm. for those yep. athletes. However, the majority of the questions were surrounding what, say, the role of a micronutrient might be in the body. So what is the role of iron in the body? Mm -hmm. Or what is the role or the goal of this particular type of supplement? So there weren't a lot of questions where it was very specific looking at the for instance, dose recommendation for a, an athlete in that mm -hmm. case. Yep. And what was some of the results that you found? You said you mentioned earlier that the, the knowledge level nutrition-wise perhaps showed some deficits. Yeah. So in that study, we actually had athletes as well as coaches of para-athletes participate. And we were quite broad in the coach definition in the sense that it could include, say, strength trainers or really anyone working with the athletes. And what we found is fairly consistent to what you see in any athlete population, which is they have an, a pretty good understanding of the basic concepts of nutrition. And a lot mm -hmm. of that is, I think, just it's covered in school. It's in sort of your day-to-day -day life exposure. Mm -hmm. The areas where we found that we really could focus on with our nutrition education interventions are specifically a lot of work around the micronutrients. So the vitamins and minerals, there was a lot of kind of uncertainty of what they would do in the body and what their role was. And then around specifically sport nutrition information, and that would be regarding information about, say, meal timing in relation to exercise or uh, rehydration strategies and those types of things. And then the other area was in the dietary supplements and, and what their role would be. And we see those being relatively poor in both the, the coaches and the athletes, the coaches had a little bit stronger response, but we still need to provide some more information in those areas. And are you aware of any really good sources of education and information for athletes in general in 
those areas. Like you, if you did a Google search on, I don't know, say vitamin D, just as an example, you'll get a plethora of, of information, some of which is fairly accurate and some of it is very poorly directed and very inaccurate. So in terms of if, if say, a, an athlete doesn't have access to a sports nutritionist or a sports dietitian who, who can provide them with that information, where are the sources of information out there, even if you're not a Paralympic athlete, just in general? Well, that, that is the issue. So we do ask people where they get their information from. In this particular study, we were looking at quite elite level athletes. And so we did have a fair number of those athletes getting their information from dietitians. Mm -hmm. We also found that both athletes and coaches relied quite heavily on the coaches. So mm -hmm. coaches would use other coaches as a resource and athletes would use their coach as a resource. Mm -hmm. And then as you've correctly identified, it then becomes the internet. And it is difficult in the sense that we don't really have, say, a set online course even that athletes could take. A lot of the information that we have or the a lot of the training that you could do would be specifically for, say, dietitians or potentially coaches. So it, it is definitely the biggest problem in the sense that we don't have a lot of great information. We are seeing more and more that people are being encouraged to publish open access. And so that means that athletes and coaches could access those scientific journals mm -hmm. without a fee. But those do require a certain understanding of how academic papers are written and how things are presented in order to really yeah. sort out the information there. Yeah. And, and that can be, that can be a scary so, like even for uh, <laughs> someone who's got a PhD, some of those studies are not the easiest to read and, and certainly quite daunting and, and maybe too either too generalised or too specific to a particular instance, then, then it's hard to translate that across a population. Absolutely. So I would love to see, you know, a widely available position statement coming out and some online training designed for coaches and athletes that would be really great mm. well hopefully someone's putting some investment in there in terms of <laughs> and I'm going to put a little plug in because there is some some information that is available certainly at the AIS dietary supplements framework I guess is the best way of, of describing it actually has education material associated both for practitioners and for athletes and coaches around the, the, the dietary supplements that are considered to be safe, efficacious and potentially useful for use in, in athletes. So if anyone wants that information, they can just do a, a search on the Australian Institute of Sport and dietary supplements and it'll take them to the, the relevant pages. And at the end of the podcast, I'll give the actual link. But that's one example. But I think sometimes they're hidden. And especially if you do a Google search, unless you put in the, the right words, you, you'll get all of the other crap that's out there. Can I say that? <laughs> before, you, before you get to the good quality information. So I think it's, yeah, I I think it's it's building that awareness that there are resources. 
It's just knowing how to find those resources. Yeah, it would nice. It would be nice to see them more widely available and also more condensed in one place. You can get good bits and pieces from from different areas, but it would be nice to see something that's all in one place and easy to access. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Right. Uh, so many, so many things that we could talk about, <laughs> and we could go down lots of lots of rabbit holes. But we're not going to try and do that. I guess my first, like, I, I guess to kind of bring it together a little bit. What do you recommend for athletes and coaches in terms of what are the things that they need to be aware of with dietary supplements, and what do you recommend? to them do you think there's any specific supplements that you think are useful or is it all dependent on context I think maybe the easiest way to answer that question is just to outline how I would walk an athlete through the process of deciding about a dietary supplement if that's okay Mm, go for it so I think the first thing the athlete needs to start out by thinking about is what is the issue or what is the goal? Why do I feel like I need a supplement? Because in any athlete population, the athlete knows best how their body is feeling and what's going on. They tend to be really in tune and they know if something is not not right. Mm. And so that's the first question. Why are you looking for a supplement and what are you looking for it to do? The next thing I would ask is if they're identifying a problem. So for instance, I feel a lot of fatigue. Well, let's look at what the potential causes could be and let's rule out the things that could be problematic or let's identify what we can target. So Mm. if they're coming to me and saying, you know, I'm feeling really tired all the time. Well, can we get your iron tested? Can we get your B vitamin levels looked at? Is it something with your sleep? Because there's no point in giving an athlete an iron supplement if their iron intakes are fine. And in fact, that's probably going to be fairly harmful. Mm -hmm. So we want to rule out any sort of well-established problem, either at the dietary intake or or a medical issue and and make sure that the supplement is the way to go. Mm -hmm. After that, we're kind of looking at, is it, what type of season are you in? So is it winter? Do you need a vitamin D? Are you in a what training phase are you in? What's going on there and what supplements may or may not work at that time? Then we're looking at, is there any evidence for the supplement? First off, is it safe? (laughs) And then is there any evidence that it might be effective? And this is a bit tricky because we have a lot of supplements where maybe statistically it's not significant, but from a clinical perspective, if we see an improvement of 10 seconds, that actually might be quite Mm. important to the athlete. So we're looking at that and considering the risks versus the benefits. Then obviously we want to check and make sure that if they buy the supplement, it's not contaminated, that they're getting it from a good source and that it's a legal supplement if we're not breaking any regulations. Then for all athletes, but most specifically for para-athletes, we're looking at are you on any medications or are you consuming any other supplements or, or foods where we potentially are getting either a food drug, supplement, drug interaction that we would be concerned about? Mm-hmm. After that, we want to try it out in training, probably start out at 
a low dose, particularly because there's a lot less research in para-athletes on the mm-hmm. dose. Yep. So for instance, you did mention caffeine. So maybe starting at a lower dose, although most of the evidence would suggest that the lower dose really isn't working all that well, even in para-athletes. And then we're monitoring for any side effects, negative or positive, to see if it's it's helping their performance. And then just reassessing, is it still working for me? And then I think if you kind of work through that process, you should end up at least identifying something that will work or if it's not working, but you're kind of in a good place, I would say. I would add one thing to that list. (laughs) Checking that their their dietary intake is actually appropriate for their training demands and is, is as nutritionally sound as it can be first. Absolutely. And I mean, we've done diet assessments and other people have done diet assessments and para-athletes. And to be honest, it's typically what you see in in any athlete population and is a reflection of our cultural food. We know vitamin D is typically quite low. We know in athletes that carbohydrate intakes are actually usually a little bit lower than we would like to see and that protein Mm. intakes are adequate. But We also know that for para-athletes, it may be more challenging for them from a dietary perspective just because they may not have the same ability to access and prepare foods in some cases. So that could make it more challenging for them to meet those requirements through diet Mm. alone. Yep, yep. And I guess you mentioned in there checking that it's uh, legal. And so, as you said, most of the the athletes that you've done the research on are high-level athletes and and therefore are probably under some sort of regulation that they comply with the WADA guidelines and WADA testing protocols uh, for anti-doping. So how do they find out if their supplement is safe from that perspective and legal? So legal, I mean, you can go look at the WADA has the list of you know, what is legal and what is not. So that's where you're going to want to go. And I mean, I would add that athletes may be under different regulations. So in some cases, for instance, I'm aware that the the college system in the U.S. might have different rules regarding mm-hmm. what is allowed and not. So making sure that you're following the rules of whatever organization is overseeing you. After that, we're looking at ideally what we're wanting to see is some sort of external lab quality control certification that's identifying that that supplement is safe or in some cases it can be provided by the organization that they're training through and then they'll have their sort of suppliers to make sure that everything is not contaminated. Yeah, so examples of that are NSF certified for sport, informed choice, like there's a number of examples across different countries where yeah. where they the products are being batch tested for banned substances and if they're being batch tested for banned substances then that's the safest that you're going to get. Yeah, and as you mentioned it varies depending on country, but yep. there's a variety of different organizations that'll do that. Yeah, cool. Awesome. What about uh, recommendations for practitioners? So for uh, sports scientists and you know sports dietitians, any specific recommendations you have for them? Certainly. I mean, I think the first one is to really sit down and, and talk to the athlete and listen to the athlete. 
I don't think it's a good plan to kind of have a blanket. (laughs) This will work for everybody. So Mm. take the time to figure out why they're saying they need a supplement and to do the deep dive into, as you mentioned, their dietary intakes, their sleep patterns, their medical history to make sure that, that you know where they're coming from and why potentially a supplement might benefit in that case. And then make sure that you're obviously doing the, the check to ensure that it's safe for that particular athlete. So make sure that either they are looking for the medical information that they need to know if they're on any medications or that you have that information. Mm-hmm. And then to monitor if you're able. So if you are a coach and you're able to get any sort of either exercise outcomes or any information from the athlete to determine the effectiveness. So if you're able to kind of even something as simple as, you know, a perceived exertion during the workout, if it's a similar workout to what they've done before, and they're noticing that, hey, that feels a little bit easier if I take a little bit of carbohydrate halfway through, Mm. because I think that information can be really valuable. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, well, thanks, Jill. If you look at the research and you look at it over a number of years, would you say Mm -hmm. that there are improvements that you're seeing or that I think some of the earliest stuff that was done in para-athletes in terms of dietary intakes was probably now 20 years ago perhaps? Are you seeing much improvement in terms of their nutrition knowledge and perhaps some of their dietary intakes? Or do you think that we're still got a, a long way to go? From- I would definitely say we're seeing improvements in the information available to para-athletes. I think mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot more research come out in a whole bunch of athlete populations that we weren't seeing before. So for instance, even now looking just at, there's a lot more research in female athletes, which then if you're a female para-athlete, that information might be really quite useful to you. Mm -hmm. So that I think we're definitely seeing improvements in. As far as the dietary intakes go, it's challenging for sure uh, to always be eating healthy when you've got training and all of life's other commitments. But I would definitely say we're seeing an increased interest in nutrition and an increased realization of the importance of nutrition. Mm. And I hope that that will translate, obviously, to better dietary intakes and more appropriate uses of supplements to where they'll be really targeted where it's going to improve the health and performance of that particular athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Jill, for your insights and also for the work that you're doing. It's really important work for for everyone to understand. Uh, Before we let you go, we have one last question, which is what's your favorite food? Ooh, my favorite food. I think I might have to go with my mom's apple pie. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) <laughs> Does she have a secret ingredient? I I don't know what it is, her secret ingredient, but whatever she does is delicious. Possibly just that it's not me cooking it. Yeah. Or the love and, and caring that goes into it. <laughs> the love and caring, yes. Awesome. 
Well, on that note, you'll probably now be salivating and, and looking forward <laughs> to a slice of your mum's apple pie. Uh, but thank you so much for for all of your the work that you do and for your insight and uh, we look forward to seeing more research coming out of your lab. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Jill's given a really nice overview of the dietary supplements scenario in a para-athlete population. The website that I was talking about is ais.gov.au forward slash nutrition forward slash supplements. But if you did a search on AIS supplements program, it should take you to that website. And it has some really good up-to-date resources just to help you navigate some of those questions that you may have around this topic. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we'll share it with your social media to help spread the word about the whole series of podcasts that there are. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Dr. Gary Slater, who is an Australian sports dietitian and researcher about body composition and physique assessment and monitoring. 